Today, we will hear how four quite different institutions have responded to build a sense of belonging. There's three ships, right? One is membership, partnership, donorship. Can access learning spaces in ways and shapes that they have not been able to do so before and able to participate. It's the universities that have to really understand. And that's what we need to keep coming back to. Student learning, student success. Good morning, everyone. Today is our third symposium for 2021, and today's is on belonging in practice. I want to acknowledge that I'm hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Camaragal people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands in which you all work today, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this meeting, and the First Nations people across Canada. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia and across the broad expanses of Canada. I also welcome our colleagues from Canada. It's good to have you return. The quilt results published recently in Australia indicate student ratings of the quality of their entire educational experience among undergraduates fell sharply from 78% in 2019 to 69% in 2020, a fall of nine percentage points. There are also substantial falls in student positive ratings of learner engagement from 60% in 2019 to 44% in 2020, and of learning resources from 84% in 2019 to 76% in 2020. There were smaller falls in positive ratings for student support, skills, development, and teaching quality. It's worth looking at these data if you haven't done so already. Over 400 people have registered for our webinar today. Creating the conditions for, to facilitate student belonging is a challenge, but also a central responsibility of what we do in any education system. Today, we will hear how four quite different institutions have responded to build a sense of belonging and the practical responses that have been put in place. So the session today is organized with an introduction, um, and then I will ask each member uh, a question that will last about 35 minutes. Then um, questions will be taken from the audience. And uh, if, I'm if you're lucky, I will attempt to bring it together at the end and that will take about five minutes. Let me now introduce our um, panel. Um, but before we get to the questions, can I ask each of you to provide us with some background in your experience regarding the development of student belonging? And I invite Emeritus Professor Beverly Oliver to speak first. Thank Beth. you, Judith. Good morning, uh, fellow panelists and everyone who's joined us. It's great to be back on Zoom again, which is the whole new world, isn't it, really? Um, once upon a time, we would have got on a plane, flown somewhere and talked and gone away. And now look what we do, which is pertinent to the subject today. Uh, look. I have an affiliation with Deakin University. I'm the former Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education at Deakin University, but I need to make it clear that I no longer speak for or on behalf of Deakin University as I'm not actively employed there. So Judith, really, um, for the last two years since I gave up full-time work, I've been more of an observer and a researcher and if you like a commentator, I guess, on these matters, not so much at the helm. So I just wanted to make that clear to the group. But I have an enduring passion for education and particularly for the fully online learner. Um, and I'll talk more about this shortly, but I'm very interested in how we make learning possible as 
possible as possible for the person who elects to learn online. I know a lot's happened since the pandemic and a lot of people went online who weren't expecting to go online, which I imagine is some of the background to those quilt data. But if online, fully online is the default, which I think it now will be more often, how do we actually make sure that those people have the optimal circumstances for learning? I'll leave it there. That's my little introduction. I'll come Thank back. Thank you. Gavin, can I invite you to uh, introduce yourself? Yes, uh, good morning, everyone, uh, or good evening for my, uh, or late afternoon uh, for my Canadian uh, uh, counterparts. My name is Gavin Watson, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is, uh, rather, my pronouns are he, him, and uh, I'm coming to you today from uh, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and specifically the city of St. John's. Uh, the image over my shoulder is, in fact, Cape Spear which is the most Eastern uh, point in North America and about a 20 minute drive from my house. This photograph was taken maybe two months ago um, with my drone, um, which is not relevant to what we're talking about today. Uh, but uh, I hold a, a dual role at uh, Memorial University um, where I am the uh, Associate Vice President Teaching and Learning. And I'm also the Director uh, of the Center for Teaching and Learning uh, on St. John's campus. And um, those two pieces are relevant uh, for um, the experience that I bring uh, to the table, um, as I've been a uh, online educator for um, almost 20 years now, um, so I have the lived experience of being in the online classroom, um, but I'm also working with faculty members across the institution uh, to enhance their teaching practices when it comes to um, online, in-person, and blended learning, and then ultimately I'm also attempting to support the institution as we create uh, meaningful learning experiences and a sense of belonging for our students. So it's a, a pleasure to be here uh, and share uh, my experiences uh, and uh, the experiences of my institution. Sherman. Thanks, Judith. Uh, my name's Sherman Young. I'm the interim DVC education at RMIT University. And I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the uh, the people of the Woiwurrung and Boomerang language groups of the East Kulin Nations on whose unceded land RMIT conducts the business of the university and pay my respect to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging from those peoples. Um, I'm coming to you from Melbourne um, in, in Australia. Uh, that is not Melbourne in my background. That's actually a, a bit of coastline in, in Sydney uh, because that's that's my, I suppose that's where I spent most of my kind of adult life in around Coogee in Sydney. Um, my disciplinary background is not education, but it's kind of media and cultural studies with a real research interest in the impact of digital technologies. I'm particularly interested in that intersection of student experience and digital cultures. Um, and what can we learn from the 25, 30 years of, of the internet and everything that has emerged in, in that time period and that different type of engagement across not just learning, but our broader social uh, and wider life. Um, as far as RMIT is concerned, uh, our approach is really gonna have to be blended. I mean, I, I take, the, take the point that, you know, more and more students are gonna be moving online, but our unpacking of the quilt data is very much that our students wanted that learner engagement face-to-face. -face. They missed desperately that opportunity to talk to and meet and engage with other students in, in a physical environment. And they also missed our resources. Um, that learner resource score that you mentioned, Judith, that was, that was quite, um, quite a dramatic um, change for us. And we saw very clearly that the, uh, you know, whether it's the big engineering labs or the, the studios that we have, um, they were things that our, that our students really missed. 
And so for me, moving forward, how do we get that sense of belonging in that blended mode where both online and physical need to be engaging, where both of them are opportunities for our students and they're both opportunities that all of our students want to engage with. That's me. And Chris, with your Thanks. gorgeous Sydney sunset. Thanks. Thank you, Judith. So hello everyone, super excited to be with you today. Um, I'm Chris Tisdale. I'm a professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Um, education for me is, is like a, a vocation. Um, it's been a very strong voice within me calling since I was, I was young. Um, I, I'm a bit like Gavin. I've been teaching online for a long time too. Uh, I think I, I established one of Australia's earliest YouTube channels uh, dedicated to learning mathematics um, 13 years ago. Um, and and um, I segue nicely in from Sherman's comments as well, because for the last two years, I've been running a, a research project on, on how teachers can um, embed community, whether it's face-to-face, -face, blended or online. So um, I'm super excited to be sharing some of that with you today. Excellent. So let's, let's start with the business of today. And my first question is really for all of you. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a Dorothy Dixer. And uh, the question is, have there been any unexpected or unanticipated benefits from COVID-19 pandemic around building community and belonging amongst students? So, uh, Gavin, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thanks. Um, so one of the things that I, when we think about belonging, um, I, I believe that we're talking about um, students um, finding a place and a space for their participation and feeling valued within yeah. the classroom, whatever that classroom looks like. And I would say that one of the unexpected benefits around building community that I've seen um, at our institution, but elsewhere throughout the pandemic is the notion that equity deserving students can access learning spaces in ways and shapes that they have not been able to do so before and able to participate in learning experiences uh, in such a way um, that is to their benefit. Um, we're hearing as we're considering what the our uh, resumption of, of on-campus learning will look like, that we don't want to, that there are students um, who have um, access, um, like physical disabilities and physical access um, uh, concerns, and they're concerned about having to return to back to an inaccessible campus. And so I, I would say um, that I would want to highlight that notion around um, increased flexibility where community is built and increased access. Um, as for those equity deserving students. Okay, thank you. Um, Chris. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, um, Judith. I'll just, I agree with what's, what Gavin's already mentioned. So let me um, tease that out a bit. Um, so we, we were faced with um, the situation where our, our own institution and, and also nationally, um, we were asked about, you know, fostering senses of community and people didn't really know how to do it. Um, at, that, at that program and, and course and that classroom level. So that was um, one of the, the motivations for, for driving our, our research. And um, just to go on from what Gavin mentioned, for us, when we talk about community, what do we actually mean? Well, um, the, 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 there's three dimensions um, in, in, in our opinion. Um, that one is sort of, uh, I guess, three ships, right? One is membership. You know, I feel like I'm a part of something. Um, a partnership. So we're in this together, we're learning together. And um, the third one is ownership, you know, people, students taking control of their own learning and their own learning trajectory. Um, so so once, once we worked that out, um, we were looking at um, 
basic pedagogical um, experiments, both face-to-face -face and online, um, and uh, we could compare them. Now, um, you mentioned if there are any benefits to come out of these things uh, with, with COVID before, Judith, getting back to your original question. Um, look, I I'm, I'm, was very excited to try the community fully online. Um, it's always been a bit of a fringe activity for many universities in Australia. I, I just wish that we didn't have to go through a pandemic to get there. Um, and it's interesting, when, when you compare the two things, um, um, some things that, that work face-to-face -face will always also work online. Uh, but, you know, the question is what, what, what's same and, and, and what's different? But I'll pass back to you, Judith. Okay. Bev? Well, as I said, Judith, I've been more of a, an observer than a, someone actively engaged. However, my reflections would be that, you know, it, you can't make assumptions and group statements about everyone because the student body is actually very diverse. So if we think of the people who were in many Australian universities who were already studying at a distance or fully online, and as we all know in the Australian context, um, it's very different. Some universities are very much into online learning already, others not so much at all, and I'm sure it's the same in Canada. So the people who had already elected to study online saw very little difference, I would imagine. Then I would say there's a second group of people who were in disciplines which don't require a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. I take Sherman's point about the engineering labs and there'd be medical labs and others. And that is the sticking point. Actually trying to emulate that all of a sudden online would have been very difficult, but that's not everybody. So a lot of people who were studying on campus in fully what I would call sort of discursive subjects like business arts, for example, um, there'd be lots of people who could switch to the online. They might, they might not have liked it. It might not have been great. Uh, but again, they would have had a pretty similar experience. And I would just finish by saying, Judith, that in my experience pre previously at Deakin, the fully on-campus students often acted like the fully online students anyway. Students were very transactional. They did not necessarily want to drive for two hours to campus, lose the will to live finding a parking spot, and then schlep into a lecture theatre to sit and listen to someone when they could have actually stayed in bed and done the same thing. So, you know, I would be a little provocative and say, I think a lot of students were doing the fully online learning anyway, or pretty much. And it was more the universities who were surprised when the pandemic came along rather than the students. I don't know, I could be wrong, but I'll leave it there. Thank you. And Sherman? Um, a, a couple of observations I've always made about the internet are that firstly, it, it tends to make the invisible visible. Um, and secondly, it acts as an amplifier or an accelerator of things. And what, what COVID did was really highlight those two characteristics, if you like. There was a lot of activity, to Bev's point, but we probably knew was happening around our student behaviour and our student engagement. Um, and all of a sudden, because we had to shift to remote distance and online learning, it was pretty apparent that those behaviours um, were always happening. And now we had to actually confront them and address them in a, in a proper and engaging way. Um, I also go back to, um, you know, some of us are old enough to remember the early days of the internet and, and Howard Rheingold wrote a seminal book called Virtual Community back in the early 90s, where he wrote about perhaps um, the first online community <coughs> the world, <coughs> excuse me, 
which is a whole earth lot electronic link. And it was arguably the world's first online community in the first place where you could actually examine that sense of belonging in the online space. And, and he, he drew on sociologist Mark Smith's kind of ideas around, well, what are the capitals that create that community? And, and, and kind of in, in parallel to Chris's three ships, there was the idea of a, a social network capital, a knowledge capital and a communion. So, so you know, what, what are we doing online um, to understand how that community works in the context of learning? in the further context that what students are doing now in their learning space is something that has been built from that virtual community thinking right through their life on the internet. So again, as Bev said, this is nothing new for students. They've been living online um, for you know, 15 and 20 years. They've been engaging online. It's the universities that have to really understand how to use and take advantage and properly engage the students in that space that we're not probably as good as as we should be. So, given given that that point that that you're you're saying that students have this has been part of students' lived experience for a long time, that in fact we in universities are the ones that have had to catch up. What are some of the characteristics that you've seen in terms of this catch up in in terms of universities' responses? And and I'll I'll throw that question back to you, um, Sherman, because you you sort of provoked it because it's not on my script. <laughs> <laughs> I love to go off script. Uh, so look, a, a little bit of anecdata. So my, my daughter's in, um, in third year science at uh, Chris's university, actually. And we were talking about, well, what was the experience like? Because she went through that, that COVID thing and she actually came home for three months and studied entirely online. And then she went back on campus and, and she said, oh, it's great to be back in the labs, but I hope I never have to go to a face-to-face -face lecture again. And I hope that they stay online. Um, and you know, that mirrors, I mean, I think you go back five or six years and, and Marnie did some work at ANU and others have done work around the sector. We know that that kind of big lecture experience is not something that many students engage with, but we, we have persisted. We have continued to think that that is what the delivery of, of education at uh, universities should be. And it, it, it's everything from the vocabulary we use. I mean, we call our, our teachers lecturers. Um, and we, we continue to, to see in the press, the minister says, oh, lectures must come back on campus. But you know, that's, that's a clear example of where the students are telling us and have been telling us for a very long time that that's not working. Can you please rethink that? And now we're saying, okay, well, maybe we can rethink it. And it's, it's probably not as simple as just saying, well, let's chunk it up into six minute bits and throw it on, online. There's probably more nuance and more more understanding and, and, and more thinking we need to bring to that conversation. But it is to me a real trigger and a real example of, okay, the students have been there for a while, we haven't. Okay. Um, Gavin, what's, what's the Canadian perspective? Uh, well, I would say that um, what's interesting, um, just building on what uh, Sherman mentioned was that um, understanding where, where students are is obviously a really important place to be. Um, I'm also cognizant of the fact that um, uh, when we were um, uh, orienting students to the who had never taken an online course before to the online learning environment, um, there was kind of an assumption that they were illiterate and able to um, use the tools and technologies to their advantage. Um, and what we really found was that they require that kind of orientation and support to get started with those tools. So. Um, support and orientation is still a very important part of this transition um, 
And I don't think we ought to, um, though we have um, learners, especially at the undergraduate level who may have um, engaged in community and, and build connections with friends and peers um, through online social networks. I don't think we can assume that they're equally as um, capable um, for, uh, without some direction from us to do that in a, in a similar kind of learning environment. And so I think just being aware of the um, the notion that um, they're going to require guidance uh, from us and uh, and that they're going to require our support to be able to make those connections. Sherman, you weren't making that illusion. I'm just I'm just drawing I'm drawing that to a to a conclusion. Um, I think um, the risk is that we assume that because they've got um, literacy um, and, and comfort comfortability with a number of um, online social networks that they can sort of translate that kind of learning experience to the online classroom. And I think it takes very distinct and direct uh, facilitation from educators in order for community to, to occur. Chris, from somebody who, um, you know, actually works with students, takes classes and the like, what's, what's your um, perspective in terms of uh, how universities have responded? Yeah, um, another great question, Judith, thank you. Um, look, we, we all had to shift very quickly. And I think um, there, there were a, a huge flurry of emails. What, what do I, from other staff, probably including myself, what do I do? How do I do it? Something's not working. Um, you know, and, and of course the students are experiencing this too. It's not just staff. Um, so um, some of the successful strategies that, that we saw in, in actually uh, building community uh, involved four or five um, dimensions, right? Um, one was, and I think universities have done these reasonably well uh, in general. So one of them was building in flexibility. So being understanding, um, I know many um, universities last year had ultra flexible uh, grading systems, um, timelines, those sorts of things. Um, at a more sort of micro level, friendliness is, is more important than ever. Uh, that sort of pedagogical warmth um, that you get, you know, in, in the classroom, just sometimes by being around other people, but, but, but also how do you translate that through screens? That, 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 that's, that, that's super important. Um, one of the advantages that, that we've seen when you do have Zoom meetings, you can see everybody's name. You can have 200 uh, people there. You can see everyone's name. So even just simple techniques like referring to people by name when they make comments or, or, or talk uh, in your classes. So friendliness, huge thing. Um, interactivity, you know, getting a dialogue going, um, creating uh, that peer-to-peer -peer dialogue as well as um, teacher-to-student -to -to dialogue. Uh, being encouragement, I guess that, uh, being encouraging, I guess that goes back to friendliness as well. And also being supportive, not just as a, as a teacher or as somebody who, who uh, facilitates learning, but encouraging the students to seek out um, supportive mechanisms uh, whether it's, it's academic or whether it's um, psychological or, or something else. Um, one of the, the really important things I think that we can try to do is to normalise help seeking. So there are four or five strategies that we've seen, Judith, that have really helped um, in our studies on, uh, on building community. So it's not just build community. It's like what are some practical things that we can do to actually, you know, on the ground, so to speak, to, to, to really foster that sense of community. And Bev, what are your observations from outside? Um, you know, look, look, looking, looking across the horizon and across the field of play. 
Well, uh, I'll share with you, Judith and um, colleagues, that when I did finish full-time work at the end of 2018, one of the things I did early in 2019 was I joined this community myself. I um, actually enrolled in an online degree at an Australian university. So uh, I did it for personal interest and I just wanted to learn stuff. It was a pretty dismal experience, I have to say. Uh, and, you know, it was dismal because as a learner, no one really bothered to find out who I was, what I, what I already knew and what I wanted to get out of this course now. And so I'd like to bring to the conversation a slightly different lens, and that is that we need to think of these people as learners. Universities should be for the lifelong learning of the nation. And yet when we do come to talk about these issues, we talk about students, and I, I assume in our heads, we often think of the 18-year-old. We just talked a minute ago about how familiar they are with technology, and we know they're not all. But the, the lifespan learner, you know, in the Australian sector, goes from 16 years of age is about our younger student in, and to someone in their 80s. So there are lots of people, if you do the analysis, in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And at some universities, for example, I heard the vice chancellor a few years ago of UNE, University of New England, uh, talking about their typical learner, who was a 33-year-old mother of two, if not three children, well, she might have three next year, and that's why she's attrited. And I thought that was very telling. So I think what we have to do, whether our students are fully online, partly online, or whatever, is we actually have to figure out who these learners are. And it will be different by discipline, cohort, university. They're different groups of people. Find out who they are, and then actually ask them what they want. Because quite frankly, I wasn't looking for a community when I signed up to learn. It was a personal um, interest subject I wanted to learn. I wanted more engagement with the teaching staff, quite frankly. I wanted decent feedback on my assessment. And in the end, I decided I wasn't getting it. I got a rubric, you know, with crosses on it telling me about my essay. And I thought, this is not worth it. This is too expensive and too time consuming. So there you are as a personal experience of one of our learners. And I'm only one person and other people would want different things. But um, I think it's important to do that research and then ask your learners, what is it that helps and hinders your learning? What do you want to achieve? How can we deliver it? And are we delivering it? End good. of rant. Yeah, no, no, and, and good questions. And I think that they are questions about um, student engagement, but they're also questions about accountability and, and to whom are we accountable? And uh, I, I think that's something that's often not really talked about. Chris, can I um, start off the next question with, um, drawings from some of the research that you did. And you, you referred to in your research, uh, Alan et al's 2016 research about teacher behavior has an impact on students' sense of belonging and sense of community in the classroom. And this, this in fact, picks up a bit on what you were saying, Beth. Um, what if, does this experience support or contradict um, uh, Alan et al's view? And what have you observed in practice about the behavior of the teacher and the response of students? Yeah, look, look, I'm probably a bit biased here, Judith. Um, you know, there, 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 there's this um, um, uh, position in education that teachers are, are no longer important. And, you know, you've moved from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side to the, you know, the peer at the rear, so to speak, um, which, which is something that, that I, I disagree with. I, I think that the last 
12 months have shown that, that teachers are, are, have never been more important um, because they're, they're, a, they're so much of a, a source uh, of inspiration and support to, to learners everywhere. Um, so um, we, we found that there are things that, that teachers can do. Uh, and what we've looked at is to try to bridge that gap between create community to actually, well, how do you do that? Um, we looked at strategies that everybody could do. Like it's no, it's no use having these, um, these um, uh, strategies if, if nobody can feel that they, they can implement them. Um, so those are some of the things that were going through our minds when we were, when we were doing this research. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that, uh, that, that paper though. Um, if you look in the, in the research, the, one of the biggest factors on um, a student uh, satisfaction is the relationship between the learners and, and their teacher. And, and that's well known. I mean, you, you know, that's, that's like, I'm, I'm just going to say it. So, um, uh, so that's, you know, some people will not want to hear that, but that's, that's pretty important. Back to you. And in, in fact, uh, we've got an anonymous attendee and, and Gavin, you're going to ask, make a comment to this question that um, vid having videos on and uh, if you've got a video on, you can create a sense of community and a sense of engagement and a sense of visibility and a sense of place. But without those, without the, the videos on, you've got a blank screen. Um, and that I'm sure um, has a, an impact on the ability to create a, a sense of belonging. Gavin, do you want to... Um, response yeah, to, respond I, to that? I would just, yeah, I'll respond to that by saying that having the video on creates a certain <laughs> kind of belonging. And I think it recreates, it's, it's us looking to recreate what we'd expect uh, a classroom community to look like in the face-to-face -face environment where you can look out across the entire, um, uh, you know, uh, swath of your lecture hall and see everybody there. And, and that feels normal and that feels good. And I think the moment that we shifted to um, online and remote, that, that sort of grounding disappeared. And what became implicit uh, be, uh, suddenly became um, unique and, and unexpected. And I would just say that um, uh, whenever I'm talking about um, uh, teaching and, and designing for online learning, it's not simply taking and making anal an analogous experiences, taking the lecture hall and, 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 um, and reproducing it online. It's about considering the affordances of the technology and then coupling that with what it is that you want to achieve as an educator and, and trying to find new stuff. So specifically with video, um, I think that, it, so like I said, it, it allows for a certain kind of, of engagement, but I would say that there's lots of different ways to foster meaningful engagement that don't require synchronous time and place where everybody needs to be um, stuck in a chair, looking at a screen and um, going and kind of like serial one by one talking. I think that that's really um, relatively reductive. And I think that tools and technologies that we have access to um, quite possibly create other ways of facilitating that kind of, of engagement. And just that I would say that um, as others have uh, talked, have uh, mentioned in the chat, you know, um, students are not turning their um, video on because they've been um, put into um, unexpected uh, places due to the pandemic, i.e. they're studying at home, they don't want to show the environment that they're in. Um, and and um, that um, in this particular paper, what I've heard anecdotally, generally speaking, seems to affect um, those students for whom um, 
there are other, you know, first generation students, students uh, that identify um, uh, as requiring a different kinds of support. It's, it's, a, it's an uneven, um, it creates an uneven playing field. So I, I just think that uh, maybe that's my soapbox that we just need to also consider the, um, the other ways of, of engage, of, of fostering engagement. Chairman? Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to be, begin by, by thinking about what Gavin says, because I, I totally agree. It's like, you know, we, we tend to kind of try and recreate what we're used to in the online environment, whereas the, the real challenge is to come up with something innovative and new uh, and, and more appropriate for the affordances that the, the new technologies enable us and allow us to do. And I can't help but think we're kind of like pretty early in the in the journey for learning um, and there's a comment in the chat about um, you know I'll paraphrase here about how archaic the LMS is and I totally agree every time I hop into Canvas or Moodle with all due respect to colleagues in Canvas and in instructor and, and, and their Moodle rooms it's it feels like stepping back into the 90s and it's like you know we we really need to be thinking about well how can we we use this opportunity to build new capabilities as well as uh, draw on the ones that, that that are available to us on those existing platforms I, I will note that you know um, online communities have not traditionally relied on video. That's a fairly recent thing. We've been building communities online for a long time that have been textually based and, and really rich communities that have been textually based. Granted, the, the, the continuum of time and um, connection is different often from the classroom experience and, and what we think of as a traditional university experience. But it does give us the uh, the experience, if you like, of saying, well, you can do this. What are the what are the ways that we can build communities? Is it around uh, you know shared interest? Is it around setting up activities? Is it around you know finding ways to to even um, intersperse a, a textual or, or um, engagement online that's fairly simple with a richer physical one in a um, in a regular basis? Is there a way to to do that uh, in a slightly different formulation? Then to Gavin's point, simply trying to replicate, oh, here is a classroom, and let's try and do the classroom um, online. Um, I have to say, Judith, I've forgotten what the question is. So uh, can you remind If that was the answer, that was the question. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Look, there's, there's a comment here that uh, somebody has made, and, and um, there, there have been a few articles in the last few weeks, one from the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday, effectively saying universities are dying. Do you agree? If so, is it because of the lack of engagement, as Beverly says, or something more systemic. I'm inclined to agree with the articles, but I think it's quite a slow demise as people start learning differently. Anybody want to make a, a comment on, on that uh, observation made by Anonymous? I'll have a go, Judith. Uh, I don't think universities are dying and I don't think they will die in a hurry, but they are under a great deal of pressure. I would also want to take a moment to actually acknowledge you know, the dreadful circumstances that people had to work within in the last year or so, particularly in universities worldwide and definitely in Australia. I mean, industrially and so on. Uh, and, you know, it's testament to people that the, the, the business is still operating, if I can put that in inverted commas. Um, I think politically in Australia, universities are certainly under scrutiny. I won't say attack. Uh, the government is clearly not um, friendly with universities at the moment. But I think as educators and researchers, the best thing we can do is buckle down and do what we're passionate about and, and the core business of a university. And that is about making sure 
people have a good learning experience, that they're successful at what they're trying to do, and that we cre keep creating new knowledge. So I would just try to be a little optimistic about that and say, you know, these things come and go. Uh, this too will pass, as they say. And uh, this is an opportunity, though, if you are working in the university, to think very hard about what your real mission is and to focus on doing that really, really well. And um, crises are often a very good opportunity for innovation and for doing things better. So try to see the upside. Yeah. Any, anybody else want to uh, respond to Anonymous? Um, I'll, I'll have a shot there, there Judith. Um, I, I tend to agree with, with Beverly. It's like university's been around for a very long time and, and um, the, the notion that they're dying is probably better recast as um, they are going through a period of reinvention um, and, and a revalidation of their, their mission and their, their purpose in the community. Um, if you go back to, to the, the early days of the university, I think the original uh, mantra of Bologna was a community of scholars. Um, and building on that, it's kind of evolved and developed into the modern research university, which we, um, we all enjoy and, and engage with now. Is the current formulation going to be the one which, you know, endures for the next 50 years? Perhaps not, but I have faith that there will remain a community of scholars which continues to educate and continues to develop new knowledge. Um, and so I don't think it's dead, but I think it's it's probably, uh, again, to, to Bev's point, um, time for kind of a, a bit of a, a, a reassessment and a re-evaluation re of exactly what the university is. Is it a version of that Mark Twain aphorism, news of my death is greatly exaggerated? Uh, yeah, and you know we're academics, so we simply redefine what death is. Okay. Gavin, do you want to make a comment? No, I don't need to, I don't need to take the floor. I was, uh, I've responded to somebody's um, question about um, the impact of what the future of online is in regards to students' learning experiences during the pandemic. Um, I'm, I don't know. I think I've made my point there. Okay. Chris, can I get back to your research uh, on community and belonging? And you talk about, and, and somebody asked, for these to be um, revised again. So your three ships, membership, partnership, and ownership, which I think is not only uh, a, a wonderful group of three, but uh, a clever play on words. Can you describe uh, how they work to create a sense of belonging? And second, what were the big themes that emerged from your research? And what suggestions you, can you make to our participants in building communities on campus and in the ether? Yeah, yeah, they all, all great. A big suite of questions there, so I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so, um, you know, I, I see the, the membership, the partnership and the, and the ownership as sort of levels of, of, of community here, right? So, um, you know, you, you sort of, um, uh, you want to get to that first stage where people feel like they, they belong, um, that, they're a, that they're a part of something, that they're a member of something. Um, and then, you know, the, the next level up in that model would be, would be the partnership where, um, Know, these uh, students are uh, working together. You know, this is, I, I'm, I'm part of something. And then the third one would be ownership, where this is like the highest level in that model. Um, you know, this is my, my course or uh, this is my learning uh, trajectory or something like that. So, so there, to me, they're the three stages um, of, of community. Uh, and it's hard to do the, the ownership if you don't actually get the membership <laughs> first. Um, so, so that's it. Um, 
And how do you do it? Uh, I mean, a lot of institutions and, and a lot's written in the research field about, oh, we should be creating community. Um, there, there's a disconnect between that, that sort of um, a message and actually teaching staff on the ground, trying to do it. Uh, and that's, that, that's a well-known gap. So um, we think that it's, it's, it's got challenges, but it's doable. Um, one of the, the key things that, that we discovered was that part of, part of this was giving up some of the control and the, um, the rigidness of the way um, uh, lecturers and tutors and professors teach. Um, students, in our study, students had a lot of choice uh, when certain material was covered, what preparation was done, when, um, when assessments were done. Um, and this seemed to, to really give, give our students a sense of um, a control over situations and choice. And, and that, that sort of goes back to the flexibility that I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned things like, um, like our pedagogical warmth, you know, teachers actually being, uh, being friendly uh, and uh, being supportive of, of their classes. Um, and so what, what our students, uh, our study showed was there are a four or five practical activities that pretty much any teacher can do in their own way that can foster that sense of community. And uh, the, the, the research timeline for us is two years. We actually had a year before COVID and a year during COVID. And so um, from a timing perspective with, with comparisons, that was, that was uh, quite handy. Now, you might be thinking, well, what, what's the comparison? Um, the, the data that we got and the, um, the feedback that we got actually didn't vary greatly. We just had to rethink, how, you know, how do you display pedagogical warmth uh, in, in a Zoom meeting rather than in a face-to-face -face classroom? So they're some of the takeaways that, um, that we had. Okay. Look, a number of um, people have brought up the idea of friendships and that, that you know, one, one of the values of being on campus is that you can hang out with your friends. And uh, so Sheila Chang uh, makes this comment. One of the outcomes of the lecture theatre face-to-face tutorials is engagement between the students. Friendships are made and friendships are enhanced. Uh, how do you think we can emulate the student-to-student -student engagement? which is one of the greatest strengths and outcomes of a campus experience. And then earlier, somebody uh, referred to their daughter's experience at, um, at Monash. And, you know, during that first year, this person's daughter made no friends. So how, how, can, we, how can we create friendships um, for students in this environment? Gavin, did you? I have a bit of an idea, um, <laughs> create friendships. I, I... I think we need to be aware of the fact that when we're talking about uh, the lecture theater as a space where um, students can engage with one another and, and discover each other and 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 connect, that we're talking about third spaces. So it's not uh, we're talking about like the 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 study space in between classrooms or like what I like to call the informal office hours that tend to occur um, at the end of a at the end of a lecture. Um, and it's, it's about considering um, that, that there's really a loss of that and has been a loss of those kinds of, of third spaces, collision spaces, uh, at least from my perspective, given that our, and I must say from, um, from the Canadian perspective, our entire academic year has been remote or online. There's been no, um, with very few notable exceptions, very, very little on-campus learning. 
So students haven't had that um, back and forth. Um, so uh, what do we do there? Um, a, a gifted educator um, that I saw this year um, actually um, extend, they would have their um, uh, synchronous online lecture for an hour. And then they stuck around and, and conducted their office hours right after, right after the, um, the, the lecture. And what they discovered happened there was that students stayed on um, and engaged with one another. It was the informal space, because as we're all familiar with coming into Zoom meetings, especially Zoom lectures, there's often quiet, um, there's, it's nothing, crickets are chirping. But um, by facilitating um, that, that kind of space and, and, and providing, the instructor also provided very clear directions about what this time was going to be about and that it was a place for students to engage with one another. That was one way that, uh, I don't wanna describe that as friendships per se, but it was a way of creating that third space. The other piece that I would just say is that where students are doing this themselves, um, and much perhaps to the um, consternation of, of some academics, and that is that they're using tools like Discord. Um, and these are non-LMS tools where students, uh, again, back to that notion of like, students are using a suite of tools that they're already familiar with. Um, and so they're using a tool like Discord to connect with one another. And I would just say that perhaps um, it makes sense to engage with those students, not to say, don't use those, not use the Discords um, to have a conversation about the class, but just ask, um, uh, ensure that there's um, respectful conversation happening there, that there's, you know, uh, academic integrity, um, the, the philosophy of academic integrity is being upheld. And if that's the case, if there's respectful conversations and academic integrity is being upheld, maybe there's ways that you can support those communities um, that are existing outside the learning management system. So does, does that mean that you need to create boundaries, but you also need to articulate expectations and, and protocols is the wrong word, but, but expectations about how people are to engage and how people are to, to manage interactions with you know, themselves, but also with the, the, their, their teachers? Yes. So <laughs> I, I, would, I would simply say that the, a, a core tenet that I have of my teaching is that I always tell students what it is that I'm doing and why it is that I'm doing it. I'm always unpacking my assumptions and explaining why I'm doing something and how I'd like to see something. That just continues. I don't think we can necessarily assume that the, that the students are going to foster connections with one another or understand why they're in small groups um, without some kind of really um, clear direction on our part. Can I just add there, yeah. Judith, um, I think Gavin is absolutely right about that third space and, and universities have been doing that in different ways for a very long time in the in the what, what you might call the informal learning space, the, the learning that's not recognised and the, the social experiences, the clubs and societies, all of that, that um, the, the student life parts of, of the universities have always done and always done really well. And I suspect a lot of friendships and, you know, dare I say it, partnerships and lifelong relationships have, have begun out of, out of those kind of activities. Um, certainly in COVID, uh, we, we highlighted those activities for our students and made them um, far more visible. Um, you know, for example, esports got a huge run last year. It became it became quite a big thing where you know we couldn't be doing the the, the intervarsity sports as well. But you know there was a a, a very big esports kind of uh, engagement, for example. And and our our other clubs and societies uh, ran really hard and managed to build their communities um, online in a way that uh, they previously had done on campus. So I think you know those those experiences are there. Um, they do need support. 
They do need recognition, I would argue, that you know, we need to find a way to, to encourage students to, uh, to participate um, and to understand that you know, maybe if I'm the president of the Indian Student Society, it's actually a really good learning thing for me. Um, and we will, as a university, understand and recognise that and help you put that on your CV, et cetera, et cetera, as part of uh, everything you've learnt, even though it may, may have been informal rather than formal. Bev or Chris, do you want to make a comment? I wouldn't mind yeah. jumping in. Um, just Sorry, Chris. <laughs> just to be, again, a little provocative, um, I'm really sorry to hear that the, the person whose daughter didn't make any friends on campus, but I think we have to be careful not to assume that this is because of the mode. You know, one year, two year, five years ago, there were a lot of lonely people on campus. It's not all beer and Skittles for everyone. And, you know, it's very hard to track who actually comes onto a campus and what they do and whether they really are having a good time. So yes, a small group of people, I think, do engage in the clubs and societies. My sense is most people don't these days. However, the other thing is, many people engage digitally anyway. Many people have friends on you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams that they've never met and they have a virtual relationship with them. So we, we can't assume that the university has to do everything for learners. Learners are generally adults or at least, you know, approaching adulthood and well into adulthood. So they usually have good ways of connecting with people anyway. Not everyone does, but I'm saying it can't all be down to the university. I think what we have to be careful of is thinking and this is something I've had to think about as I've gone through my career. I can't just keep thinking university for a learner today is what I experienced when I was 18 on campus at UWA last century. It's just not like that anymore. And life is not like that. You know, that was before the mobile phone was invented. I know that's a shock to everyone, but you know, it wasn't easy as easy to stay in touch with people then. Um, it wasn't as easy to engage if you weren't on the campus. I didn't necessarily have a car. I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, my social life was confined to going onto campus, but people's social life is not confined to going on a campus anymore. Um, people live blended lives, we all do. So look at us now, we're not on a physical um, place, but we're all really engaging. And we've got a lot of people engaging with us online. So I guess what I'm trying to say is let's not let's be careful not to canonise the old on-campus mode because it wasn't that great for a lot of people for a lot of the time. Chris? Yeah, look, look it's, it's a great question. And um, I just wanted to echo what, what um, Gavin, uh, Sherman and Beverly have, have said. Um, the Discord pages are great. Um, I know my students tell me that when there's an online class going on, they actually have this Discord webpage community um, uh, interaction open on one part of their screen and, the, and hopefully the lecture open on the other. Um, so, so they're doing things in the background. Um, the, the, the making friends um, angle is, is super interesting. Um, how much do you, do you engineer that and how much do you sort of let that um, evolve on, on its own? I think it's probably a little of both. Um, I know um, when I was uh, associate dean in, in the Faculty of Science, we had this this introductory uh, science course. Basically, the course was about making friends, or at least that's how the students would describe it to us. Um, but, but not everybody has those opportunities. I think also um, when you're uh, 
online or, or doing um, some sort of live stream class as a student, um, you can come out of your shell a bit more. And I say that as someone who works in mathematics, we're all introverts, if you, if you don't know. Um, so you don't have to stand up in front of a class of 300 people to ask a question. You can type it in the chat. Um, and you can reach out to other people, um, uh, as others have, have already mentioned, online. So um, I don't have the answers, but it's a super interesting question. How much do you engineer friendships and, and, and how much do you sort of let it evolve naturally? There was a question here from uh, Leanne McCann, which is, uh, I, th I think, interesting. And she, asks, she makes the comment, uh, this disruption has created forced opportunities for innovation cross-culture and cross-discipline collaboration, as well as listening to the students to improve global engagement and belonging. The challenge is to hear from those students who do not provide feedback, feedback but a treat. Agility is essential. Human interaction is critical. Any thoughts? <laughs> You're all collecting your thoughts. <laughs> Look, I think I think this goes back in some ways to um, a thing I, a point I made earlier that in, in some ways this has always been the case. The challenge has always been uh, to to engage with those uh, those students with diverse, um, I suppose, cultural experiences and global experiences. Uh, and again, what we've got now is is a greater visibility of the opportunity to do that. Um, Drawing on what what uh, Chris was saying, you know, the the online technologies do have different affordances, and they do allow us to engage with different cohorts in in more sensitive and more nuanced ways. So I think Leanne, you're absolutely right. We perhaps haven't thought through exactly how we might target those groups as well as we could. Um, you know, the those who are uh, able can use tools like Discord and you know the, the the subreddits and everything to go go mad. But there will be others who aren't so literate and aren't so so capable of doing that. How do we provide the support and the opportunity for those students? And um, I think this is the, the discussion. You know, at what point does the university intervene? At what point does it allow um, the students to just get on with it? Um, and I think, Leanne, you're telling us or you're asking us. Uh, to be that place for those students who aren't capable of doing that for themselves. And I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and we need to find those tools and those mechanisms to support those students. And have you got any idea of what those mechanisms and tools might look like? Um, so some of the things that we've been looking at are, are peer mentoring opportunities, um, really finding ways for the students to connect with each other um, in, in ways that uh, uh, can happen online that uh, that used to happen perhaps face to face. We am, am I allowed to use platform names on this forum, or is this like? Yeah, of course. So, you know, we we using. It's not the ABC. <laughs> we we're using Vigo, for example, to to start to set up those peer to peer mentoring opportunities. Um, we're exploring kind of opportunities around social learning, so that the the learning is more student enabled um, rather than directed by um, by teachers. Um, all of those kind of bottom up opportunities hopefully will give voice to those who perhaps um, may not be able to, to have voice otherwise. Any Anybody else want to make a comment on that? Earlier, Amanda George made the comment about, uh, I loved teaching online in COVID and the students seemed more engaged. A challenge I've experienced is fostering belongingness and community when units are delivered in flexible mode where we accommodate both face-to-face -face and online students. 
any tips for fostering a sense of community and engagement when accommodating both modes of delivery within one unit? Gavin, you, you, you look as though you're ready to uh, jump in. Well, all I, all I would say is that I think that um, um, facilitating, um, we're calling that high flex or that, that what I believe you're describing there is, 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 an, is, is a modality where you're teaching online and face-to-face -face at the same time. If that's what we're talking about, we'll, we, uh, we're um, a term that's being bantied about um, uh, here is, is, is high flex. And I just think that that's an order of magnitude much more difficult than uh, any kind of um, in-person or full stop or online or blended. The, the, the synchronous blending is incredibly difficult. Um, and um, it has benefits, uh, but it has to be with the right learning, with the right learners. Um, high flex as a, as a mode was, was um, uh, as I understand it, uh, was piloted with graduate students. Um, and and uh, so you have you know, a, a group of students who are self-directed more or less, um, who have intrinsic engagement and who have other um, um, requirements perhaps to make a decision about whether they wanna be on campus or online. Um, certainly undergraduate students can, can be intrinsically motivated, engaged and, and have other requirements, but that's just not my, that's just not this, it's not to the same degree. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic and in fact, I've been spending a lot of time over the past couple of weeks dissuading colleagues at my institution to consider a high flex or synchronous approach, synchronous online face-to-face -face approach for the, for our coming, for September because of the barriers. Um, and, and I'm always focused on the student learning experience. I, I, um, it's not that it's impossible, it's just incredibly um, difficult. So I'm maybe, uh, I'm making faces because I'm sympathetic um, to the challenges that it provides. And I, I see it, um, I'll just close by saying, uh, we pivoted from face-to-face -to, -face to online and remote. And I see this as just yet another pivot. And I don't see my colleagues as being really um, prepared not because they're not engaged, but simply because they've got there. There's general exhaustion. Okay. Any any final comments that uh, people would like to make with regard to that? So, so I'll jump in there, Judith. I think um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's around that that kind of mixed mode delivery where you have half the class online and half the class uh, in the classroom. Um, and I know that the the jury is out on whether that that is doable. Um, without a lot of professional development for the teacher and the facilitator. I think, you know, any of us and many of us have probably experienced meetings where we've had half a room full of people and, and half, uh, half a room in Zoom chats. And it's very easy to ignore one half of the room or the other. So there's a very deliberate need to make sure that everybody, regardless of the mode of engagement is, is addressed. And that, that actually takes quite, quite a thoughtful kind of approach to what you're doing uh, in the room. Um, and, and you have to design, I suppose, the activities in such a way uh, that you are actually inclusive of, of both modes. Um, in, in some ways, the, the real simplistic answer is if you design it right so that, you, that your online students have a great experience, then your classroom experience will probably be okay as well. But I think it is a really deliberate piece of work to get that right. Thank you. And look, we're now past the hour. And so um, I'm going to have to close off. Uh, can I uh, apologize to the uh, people who have made comments and asked questions that I haven't been able to get to? Clearly our um, 
members of the panel have been very. Um, oh, I thought we were finished. We've got we've got a few more minutes, so it gives me a chance to um, ask a couple more a couple more questions. Then, um, so let let me. So we've got until quarter past. I thought we were finishing at uh, at, at ten our time. So. Back to you, um, Sherman. RMIT is a large and diverse institution. In fact, I think it's along with um, with Monash. It's they're the two largest universities in Australia. But yours is even more complex because of its dual sector. That is, technical and further education and universities for those people who are not in Australia. So, can you um, describe some of the interventions and strategies? And you started on it then that have been put in place to foster belonging within diverse populations and how you measure the effectiveness of these strategies. So often in universities, we do stuff, but then the measuring uh, to see what the, the value add, what the impact is, is, is left because there's the next project to get onto. So can you give us a sense of what's happening? Yeah, at I'll, I'll, I'll flag a couple of things that we're doing. And uh, I will acknowledge that I think uh, Rachel's on, on this call because I saw her name in a chat, but uh, one, of the, one of the big projects that has been part of RMIT for a number of years, and it predates me, is a thing that, that's called the Belonging Project. Uh, and Rachel Wilson and Bronwyn Clark from the university did a lot of work, um, a lot of research to build, build a very academic approach to what belonging looked like. Uh, and the idea was to really embed belonging um, as an aspiration right throughout what we did in, in the whole university. And that belonging happened at a number of levels. One, it was around the institution. Um, secondly, it was around the, the discipline. And then thirdly, it was around the expected profession of, of the learner. So there, were, there was effort made to, to really make sure that there was that institutional belonging and you know whether it's uh, what Chris would call that pedagogical warmth or that, that social experience or the friendship building or that sense of, yes, I am an RMIT student, um, both in the formal learning and the informal social experience. Um, and then a discipline belonging um, through, again, through the formal learning, but also through engagement with academics who are outside the classroom, through events and research activities, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, that professional belonging um, through professional and community engagement as well as the classroom. So uh, working to grade the learning partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. So a very, very kind of holistic approach to what belonging would mean for a learner. Um, we were working towards what uh, the university had called um, euphemistically the B-score, which was a measure of um, metrics which we saw as as belonging um, indicators. Uh, and uh, we, we just got to the point where we were kind of rethinking what that B-score looked like because it was seemed a bit blunt and simplistic and, and instead trying to unpack the actual indicator themselves to give our academics and teaching staff um, a, a more nuanced view about what was working or not. Um, and we were right in the middle of that when COVID hit. Um, and unfortunately, uh, our priorities went elsewhere because there was a, as some might remember, a bit of a pivot last year and, and everyone's resources kind of uh, got diverted. So that was, um, that's a, a project that's still in work in progress. We are um, coming back to it, uh, but that's something that, that we, we tried to embed right across the institution. Um, the, second, the second thing that I want to flag is, and it speaks to, I think, Bev's thoughts earlier around the differences between our cohorts. Um, and yes, there's, there's kind of the, the quite um, 
stark difference between what we, we, we might think of as the traditional undergraduate learner, what I, what I call euphemistically the, the, you know, filling the gap between adolescence and adulthood, where those, those kind of like school leavers then go on to uni and then on to, onto their careers, and then um, separately, quite separately, our, our lifelong learners who are largely working, um, perhaps looking for a career change or some career uplift. But even within those cohorts, we know that there's a lot of diversity. Um, and so we did quite a lot of work um, to try and understand the diversity of those cohorts and came up with, and I'm sure every university has done very similar things, um, the, the different personas around those um, activities. But where I think we, we did a little bit more was we, we tried to look at the transformation of those personas as students progress through that learner journey. And what became very apparent through the interviews and focus groups and other, other work we did was that there was no fixed persona, that someone might come in with a particular idea and characteristic and depending on how the university responded, reacted, made opportunities available, their learner persona would change and evolve. So they might come in as a career focused, just want to get the job kind of um, learner and then depending on what happened, they might then evolve into, no, I actually want to explore a few new intellectual ideas um, and change my, my kind of mode and, and think about things differently. So there was, there was kind of a, a, for me, a nuanced understanding of that learner journey and what actually happened uh, throughout the, the stages of a, of a student's life cycle, um, which then would of course become continual and, and go on. Um, and the lesson learned from that for me is, you know, I, I almost hate the term, but it's, it's kind of something that, that um, is used outside the sector as well, that notion of mass personalization. How do, we, how do we understand those individual journeys, personalize the experience to make sure that we engage the students properly? But to your point, Judith, with a big university, how do we do that at scale? And I think that's um, a, a work in progress uh, it makes me a little bit nervous because I'm someone who gets bombarded with Google ads for dishwashers the moment after I've done um, one search for a dishwasher. So I'm conscious that the notion of mass personalization is still a flawed one. But I think it's an aspiration for us to think about how we actually create that sense of belonging through those different opportunities for those different cohorts um, at scale. Um, I'm not sure I totally answered your question, but those are the sorts of projects that we've been looking at. Um, and we're looking at, uh, you know, at the moment we're in terms of measurement, we're, we're probably relying a little bit too much on the traditional um, SES and, in, and internally our CES survey data. But we have also got a project to reinvent and look at the cradle to grave survey approach so that we get student feedback on a more continuous basis from the moment they, they indicate interest um, to the moment they end their 60-year curriculum with RMIT as the aspiration. Um, Gavin, what, what insights can you give to us about Canada in terms of uh, what, what things have um, been put in place, not only in your university, but from universities that you're, you, you have colleagues and friends in? Yeah. Um... I hate to speak for the whole country, so I'll just speak for I'll speak for my lived experience. Uh, at mine, um, 
with the with the attempts to build belonging, we're really, um, you know, I, I, I like to think of um, levels of a system. So obviously we're supporting faculty members and instructors with uh, continuing pro uh, professional development uh, on how to um, facilitate these kinds of spaces. I'm also, um, I think it's really important to consider how the, um, if we look at what those hallmarks of connection are and, you know, what the literature says about how students, um, feel seen and recognized as, as a contributor or as a part of a community and that builds um, a sense of a community. Considering how we can use technology um, to uh, address uh, and engage learners. So, you know, um, one really uh, minor example is our um, learning management system does a really great job of um, through its uh, analytical power, um, noting when students are disengaging. And so we've been working with faculty members to encourage them to create um, automatic um, messages that are personalized, not the same mass personalization that Sherman was speaking about, but rather personalized messages. So dear Gavin, I noticed that um, you haven't submitted assignment X um, and, and, then, and then provide some kind of um, affirmative message that, you know, I've got faith in your, this is, you know, this is not what I would write, but in a sense, communicating within the fact that communicating that the student has the ability to, to complete this work and that you're as an instructor available for them. Um, that manages a little bit of the labor that I hear that we have concerns about and that I saw in the Q&A around how we manage um, being a, a warm and, and caring faculty member while also having um, a whole host of other responsibilities. So, so we've been working with faculty to use those kinds of tools to help um, foster that connection. But then there's larger work that happens across the institution um, where we're working closely with um, our student affairs group to um, really um, see connection as existing within the classroom, outside the classroom and throughout the entire institution. So that's happened this year with, you know, I don't think any of this is particularly um, revolutionary, but it's, it's incremental and little pieces matter. So I would say we've been doing town halls where we engage students We've been asking students about their learning experience through direct surveys and then communicating with them about how that's changed our, our, our um, approach to the upcoming semester. And then we've been asking students to connect with one another through um, tools that we have. We've got an, we, uh, an application that allows students to find study buddies. Um, and in fact, this little um, app that we have for students' phones allows them to say, hey, I'm studying this. I need to find somebody else and it connects them. That's the, that's the, that's the, the most um, used feature in this app that we have for students. So um, I would just say that we're growing, um, we're focusing on the classroom, but then acknowledging that there's a larger web of relationships that we need to build as far as belonging is concerned. Um, and not forgetting that the technology can help us in some regards. Bev, you're, you have presented yourself as the person that's both an insider and outsider. Um, and, and I'm the same, I'm, I'm an insider and outsider. What, what sort of broad reflections and, and observations are you making about uh, the state of, of learning and teaching in universities and what the future might look like? Thanks, Judith. I think we, um, I think we as the staff in universities need to look outside our own bubble to who the learners really are as I said before, and I'll just say that you started this uh, panel discussion by referring to the quilt data. This is the national Australian data on the quality um, of learning and teaching. And also I think 
Sherman mentioned SES, which is the Student Engagement Survey. And while those surveys are limited in their usefulness, I would encourage people at their own, whether in Canada or elsewhere in the world, but here in Australia, don't just look at the overarching figures, go down and look at the item level data. And I think what you'll find there, it's all available on the web. What you'll find there, if I go back to Chris's point at the beginning, Chris talked about, you know, seeing it, being an educator as a vocation. I agree with him. I just, you know, it's something I can't give up. I'm just, I'm still an educator. Um, the fundamentals the students have been telling us about, and doesn't matter how old or young they are, the message is clear over years and years of data. They want to, an engaging relationship with their teacher. Now that's really hard when the industrial um, settings in Australian universities often governed by academic workload models actually quantify all the time you spend engaging with students or giving them feedback on their work. They want actually really good feedback on their work. They want to feel that someone cares and is interested in them. I, I always think the fundamentals of teaching and learning have not changed and I don't think they will. Even though we live in a hybrid world, this is the way we're going to interact for a long time to come now. The world has fundamentally changed. But the fundamentals of education have not. So I think they are the things that we need to keep looking at. And to go back to that, those, those basic questions about who are these learners? What do they want to achieve? How can I help them do it? But that's going to take a great effort in very large corporatized universities where it's almost like the settings are in concrete. The LMS is in concrete. Very difficult to change an LMS. The workload models are in concrete. So it's going to take a huge effort to, to get universities to become, you know, as agile and, and user-friendly as they need to be. So I'm, uh, that's my inside and outside view, Judith that even though it's tough going and it's um, a lot of the environment is hardwired, the fundamentals are pretty clear. And that's what we need to keep coming back to, student learning, student success. What a great set of words for us to finish. I want to thank our fabulous team of panelists today. Today has been a great discussion. So thank you for participating in what I think has been a terrific conversation. Mm -hmm.